Let us pray together. Open our hearts and our minds, Almighty God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as we read from your word, you may inspire in us some new thought about who you are and about who we are and how we become more like our Savior Jesus each and every day. This is our hope and our expectation as we offer ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading from God's Word, the book of Jeremiah, the prophet. We've been reading regularly from Jeremiah the last little while. Chapter 31, beginning with verse 31. These words. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. From the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 18, beginning with verse 1. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice, so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our loving God 
wants us to have healthy hearts. God wants us to have healthy hearts. Yes, God wants us to have physically healthy hearts and bodies and minds and also spiritually healthy hearts. We understand modern physiology in a way that Jeremiah didn't. And we know that the heart is not the organ that beats in my chest, is not the seat of emotions that we once believed it was. We have emotions in our brains, we have them in our hearts, we have them in our toes. We're finding that emotion is something that flows all through our bodies, not just in our hearts. And yet, the heart still provides us with a useful and wonderful metaphor that we regularly use these days. And Jeremiah points to that truth in this particular passage. Jeremiah 31 is kind of at the heart of his letter to his, his, his uh, book, and he didn't write it all, somebody else wrote it down, but, but the, the book that recalls Jeremiah's activities, the, chapter 31 is kind of in the middle of it, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, a little bit of a different picture than the rest of his teaching or his activity. Jeremiah, as I said a few weeks ago, was known as the weeping prophet, uh, partly because he would weep and moan as he spoke to the people of Israel, the message that God gave to him. Partly he did that because he was weeping for God's people, because they'd kind of gone the wrong way. And so he has a rather harsh, harsh message to offer to them. Now Jeremiah was reluctant right from the beginning which is not unusual. Many times God's special prophets are reluctant. And he was reluctant. And then he began to do the work that God had given him to do. And he began to be ridiculed and harassed and jailed. And only after a long period of time did he prove to be one other thing, which was right. Keep that idea of being right in your mind, because I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. Because being right, it's always right, but it's not always helpful or useful in our life, especially when we're trying to be prophets. As hard as Jeremiah and the other prophets worked, uh, the people kept wandering away from God's ways. Many had simply decided that they somehow knew better than God, so they went the way that they determined was the right way. In the face of this mess that was going on among the people of Israel, some people decided that they wanted to revert to kind of a hyper-legalism, all about absolute rightness. And, and that became their goal, was simply to be right, and to be just according to the laws. And a whole bunch of other folks had hearts that had grown hard and cold along the way. And nothing really mattered to them except, how do I get from today 
to tomorrow. Jeremiah writes to the people of Israel when they are in exile in Babylon. Babylon was not a nice place. Um, they were a brutal bunch of folks. When they took over a region, they would take the, the cream of the crop and bring them back to their own place. And so a bunch of the best thinkers among the people of Israel found themselves in Babylon. In these chapters, the, the core of Jeremiah's message to the people of Israel were written to these folks in exile. And Jeremiah might have encouraged them to look at their situation and see how terrible it was and, and to militate against what was going on, but that's not what he did. He called them to a time of spiritual reflection on their own core being. The Latin word for heart is the same word that we get our word core from, right? So the heart and the core are related to our lives. Jeremiah called them to examine their hearts, their spiritual core. Not so much to talk about what was happening to them, but why? And what role did each of them play in the life situation into which they found themselves? And the other thing that Jeremiah asked them to do was to look for the spark of divine holiness, first of all inside themselves, and then additionally inside of others, including the Babylonians, which I'm sure did not strike the people of Israel as something that they wanted to do. But the people of Israel needed to recognize that the Babylonians were human too, and that they were going to be in Babylon for a while, a couple of generations. They were going to have to figure out how to live in Babylon, and not to have kind of a, a low-key revolution going on all the time, but rather to settle in, to fit in, to make something of their lives, so that when they are restored, they're ready to be the people that God has called them to be. What does Jeremiah say in chapter 29? Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in, it, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That's the same chapter where, where Jeremiah says, God, God says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans for a future with hope, right? That verse we know so well. So look at yourself, people of Israel. Examine your own hearts before you begin to make judgments about other people and appreciate the value of all people, including, including your enemies. Sounds kind of like someone else along the way, doesn't it? 
Some other guy whose name starts with J? Yeah. So, well, uh, Emily said that I had to preach from in the middle of the pew, so I guess I'll give that a try. Just for fun. Watch out, bifocals. So, when I think about this passage, it, it, it doesn't take me much time to figure out that there are some really clear modern applications that we can make to our particular spiritual lives, personal, church, community, and, and all the rest. Many sermons could be preached on what we like to call the modern exile of the church. Um, some of us are old enough to realize that there was a time not too terribly long ago, a generation or two, when we had this notion that America was fully a Christian nation. Now, we can have a long discussion about whether that's actually true or not, but there was a sense that the church was more appreciated, perhaps, than it is today. Amen? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, good. Way to listen. And we, we grumble a lot about the fact that we're not in that same position that we once were. And, and my own take on that is that's not necessarily a bad thing. If you look at church history, and I know some of you have, the times when the church has done the best and has grown the most vigorously, there have been times of intense persecution. Now, we're not wishing persecution on anyone, but the fact that we're no longer in that place of prominence like we thought we once were, it's not something to be moaned about. It's kind of our Babylon moment where we say, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, multiply there, do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. It's kind of what the church has always been about. We've always been a people of exile. And, and there's really nothing wrong with that. And we're not persecuted too terribly much in our society. We still have a great deal of freedom. There's no doubt about that. My grandparents came over from the Netherlands because that's you know such a, a riotous and rambunctious place back there in the, the 19th century. And if you were to ask my grandpa, which I couldn't do because he never learned to speak English, even though he was in this country for 70 years, um, if I were to ask him, well, why did you come to America? Well, we were persecuted over there. And I said, well, what, was, what did it mean to be persecuted? Well, we didn't get our way. Kind of what persecution was for them was they didn't get their way. It really wasn't that bad. And we don't always get our way anymore in our society as a church, do we? No. But it doesn't mean that we don't seek the welfare of the city in which we live. And we also recognize that at this very moment in the world today, there are Christians in some places who are being persecuted and killed right now. And we stand in solidarity with them, even though our persecution tends to be relatively mild. What I want to encourage us as a church and as Christians to do is, is to take a look at our hearts, at ourselves, to start looking at who we are. And, and it starts with each of us as an individual. 
Who am I? How am I responding to God's call on my heart? One of the most blaming, or one of the most damaging thing that I uh, see happening in the world today is the tendency so quickly to blame everybody else for the problems. How quick are we in our society to, to say, well, they're at fault, or they're doing it wrong, or, or whatever. Blaming has become something that a lot of people have gotten to be really, really good at. And I don't find it being helpful at all in trying to be the Christ-like presence in our community that we are called to be. The first thing that we need to do if we want to grow in our own faith and understanding of what God wants from us is to be honest with ourselves. To look at ourselves in how we are responding personally to God's call on our lives. We look at ourselves before we begin to be critical of others. Kind of remind you of something else Jesus said, right? About the speck and the log. We're so concerned about the speck in somebody else's eye. How can we be concerned when we can't see because there's a log in our own eye? Jesus was not afraid of using hyperbole in his teaching, and that's what he's doing there. I believe that a gigantic part of heart healthiness, spiritually and indeed physically, and I think, I think studies, physiological studies show that, that this is true, that, that our bad spiritual health impacts our physical health as well. And a big part of having healthy hearts, spiritually, physically, emotionally, and everything else, is to take a look at ourselves first, to be honest with ourselves. When something happens, not what did somebody else do, but how did I impact that particular situation? I think when we're really honest, kind of like the people of Israel were with, in their situation in Babylon, they, they could very easily hate the Babylonians, right? But when they stopped to look at themselves, realize why they were in the situation they were in, and then looked at their neighbors and realized that they were people too, their hearts were softened. Now, there was a practical benefit of it. It was easier to live that way. It, it, it's easier to live with a healthy spiritual heart than one that's not. And something else happened in their heart which is another thing we talk about, the heart, right? The heart is also the place that, uh, that where we think love resides in the old way of thinking about it. When we think about love, we think about the heart. When we have a spiritually healthy heart, we tend to love people more vigorously than when we don't. And when we love people, we can be in those relationships where we challenge one another but the root of it all is that we have common interest with one another. And that's the old right kind of a thing where rightness can sometimes become righteousness. And righteousness can sometimes become we're better than you. And that's not the point. The point is that we can stand for and on what we think is right 
but we do so from a spirit of loving the people who are around us. Because we're all in this thing together, and it's important for us to know that. And it's not a wimpy, sappy kind of a love. It, it's like the, the widow who, the widow, uh, who, was, who was being mistreated, and she was going to go after what she deserved vigorously, and we do that too. But recognizing that it's always tempered by the love that's within us. Love is at the core of healthy hearts, honesty and love residing together. Uh, it should become the motivation for all of our words and deeds, which is why it's important for us to have those spirits with us here in this congregation. As we ask the questions about who are we and where do we go and what kind of a church do we become and what kind of leadership do we want to have going forward. Love ought to fuel our work. And uh, it's going to sound kind of funny because I'm a Dutchman and Dutchmen aren't, aren't generally known for being, you know, just all these huggy sorts of people. I married an Italian. <laughs> I knew what hugging was all about after I married her. And she showed up with her ten aunts. A-U-N-T-S. Um, but love needs to fuel our work. And, and love fuels my work. And, and something about today and kind of having the sense that things are all coming together and the sick and the traveling people are back in the choir and we sang, uh, uh, we always sing wonderful music. Uh, and and it, it makes me feel how much I grow to love people like you all, which is kind of interesting because I'm not around too terribly long. But love fuels my work. It's at, it's at the heart of who I am. My love for God, my love for my family, my love for work, my love for this world, in spite of the fact that I shake my fist and scream at the radio pretty much as much as anybody out there. And my love for the church. So I want you to make sure that the law of God's love is etched on your hearts as we navigate this time of exile together, however we determine that exile uh, to be defined. And so I challenge you, I challenge you as we march through this time to be sure to examine your own hearts first and primarily, and then allow God to tattoo a spirit of love on your heart. So that it becomes kind of the core and the motivation of everything that you say and do as we offer ourselves together for this work at this time as our paths cross down the road to the future God has for us. Thanks be to God for this teaching from his holy word. Amen.